If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I just learned that uh, late last night we had another child born to our church family. John and Sarah Hendricks had their first child, a little boy. We don't know yet the uh, details on that, a name, etc., but uh, we know that she had a cesarean section late last night, Yeah, even as late as midnight, I think, and uh, so she's recovering, so be praying for John and Sarah especially as they recover and uh, regather themselves as a family. Rich has been preaching through selected parables the past several weeks, and so we'll do the same this morning from Luke chapter 12. And here the crowds are gathered, and Jesus is teaching His disciples regarding the difficulties of claiming the gospel in this world in which we live. And as He does so, someone with, with their own selfish urgency interrupts his teaching, and Jesus answers this interruption with a parable and then further explanation to his disciples. So you young ones, you, you young theologians among us, as you're listening and paying attention, see if you can listen carefully to this parable when you hear it. It's an odd parable. And see if you can tell, as this man talks to himself, we all kind of do that sometimes, but maybe not in these ways, As this man talks to himself, what is his greatest interest? In other words, about whom is he most concerned? Maybe you can even draw a picture of it. It would probably be kind of a funny picture. As you listen, you'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You relax, you eat, you drink, and you be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God." And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you 
the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we pray yet again this week that you would be at work in our hearts by giving us your spirit and allow us with our eyes, our minds, and our souls to see your good news in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So our family also recently returned from vacation. We didn't go west, and so we didn't have to drive through Memphis, Texas, of which I've never heard. And we didn't get any speeding tickets. But we did visit the East Coast, and we did so in order to visit extended family. And then on our way home, driving through Georgia, we stopped in Macon, where we used to live, in order to visit some friends there for a few days. We hadn't been there in four years. And we stayed with some good friends of ours there in their new country home. Now, when we had lived there before, these friends of ours lived in the city not far from us, and they had always wanted to live in the country. They longed for some land to call their own. Our friend Bill is an outdoorsman, and he's an avid fisherman and hunter and anything outdoors, and he wanted his own outdoors, and they finally found it. We found their place. They had given us directions to locate their driveway off the small highway, and we found it in the evening. And as we made our way up their mile-long driveway, curving through the woods and out around the curve that looks over the stock pond beyond which sits their house, my covetous heart awoke. (laughs) They hadn't told us what their house was like, They're gone with the wind estate, complete with the tall white columns on the vast front porch and the balcony above a two-story 6,000 square foot house with 10 foot ceilings throughout and hardwood floors. Their back den with a cathedral ceiling and three glass walls looking out on the serene pastures, which they own. And the woods behind, and another stock pond back behind that, where you can see wild turkeys in the evening, and the deer that gather outside their bedroom window late at night in the fall. And my covetous heart was awake. And hearing all that, you might think, gosh, well, the Peters have some wealthy friends in Georgia. But not exactly. You see, our friend is wise, and he waited for the right opportunity for this place. He heard about it as a bank auction. The previous owner had defaulted on their mortgage and the bank took possession and now it wanted to get rid of the place by auction. And so our friend, for 48 hours that he had, gathered together his finances, figured out what they could afford, and they went out to the place and met with the bank representatives for the auction under one of the sprawling pecan trees on the property. And he was the only bidder. And so they bought the house for the bank's opening price which was no more than what you would pay for an above-average house in Lake Highlands. And now you're joining my covetous heart with your own. (laughs) We want what we don't have. We all do. Maybe you read the recent Dallas Morning News article on personal finance 
particularly on retirement savings. And the question of the article was, in today's economy, how much must one have in order to just live off the income from that nest egg? In other words, to live with no job income and still be independently well off. Now, of course, that term well off is thoroughly subjective. And the answer to the question was, in today's economy, to be well off, living on the interest alone, you would have to have $4 million. Now, in case you're wondering that maybe you're suddenly behind the eight ball, you're still still dreaming about the first million, and now you know you need to have three more beyond that. Relax, because most of us will never see that kind of money in our life. Even in America, the land of abundance, most of us will never see that. In fact, almost no one ever will, which makes you wonder, where do we get our collective notion of being well off? We got it from the world. And a man from that world, ignoring what Jesus had just said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one is forgotten by God? So fear not, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Ignoring what Jesus had just said, this man shoves his personal concern before the crowd and what results is a parable, which on the surface is about possessions, but more deeply, it's about unbelief and fear and self-interest and anxiety. We're all anxious. You're anxious because your greatest interest is yourself. And your greatest interest is yourself because you're afraid of what you don't know. And you're afraid of what you don't know because deep down you don't really believe that your Father in Heaven knows what you need and He will make sure that you get it. As professing believers, our unbelief in the gospel is the constant reason for our many worries. And even likewise, if you're a professing skeptic, still your unbelief in the same gospel is the constant reason for your many worries. Your Father in heaven knows what you need, so fear not. Your Father in heaven knows what you need, so what you must do, Jesus says, is guard yourself against covetousness. That's what he says to these people as he turns to make an object lesson of the man's request. Thousands of people are gathered at this point. Luke tells us in verse 1, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they're trampling on one another, and he begins to teach his disciples. They all want to hear what he has to say. And he addresses his disciples first. And then someone interrupts with this personal request, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's not even a teacher, help us figure out what's best. It's teacher, be on my side and tell my brother to do what I want him to do. We want to be right. This man no less than we do. And on the one hand, this is a rude interjection. I mean, had he not noticed that Jesus was busy instructing and if he had just listened to the instruction, he might have gotten an answer for himself. But instead, he just barges up and shows how self-absorbed he is of his own concerns. He is, after all, the most important person to himself. On the other hand, it's not totally out of place. Because sometimes rabbis would arbitrate disputes regarding the law 
including the law on inheritance. And if there was a dispute, sometimes the rabbi would be sought out to help with it. In the Old Testament culture, and thus in the culture of Jesus' day, the standard practice regarding inheritance was to divide it among the sons of the family. And if there were no sons, then the daughters of the family. But the sons of the family and the oldest one would receive twice the amount of the younger ones, a double portion of the inheritance. The reason for that was that he was, as Scripture says, the first sign of his father's strength. He was the oldest in the family, and in uh, many ways he would be the successor of the family, carrying on the family name in the society, and he was to have a double portion of the inheritance. And so a standard practice was in place for this sort of thing. But sometimes a dispute arose, and evidently this man had one. Probably he was a younger brother. You would imagine so. And he's disputing with his older brother, challenging him. Maybe the older brother wants to take more than a double portion. Maybe he wants to keep the whole estate intact and have it all. Maybe the younger one just wants an equal share rather than half what his brother gets. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. In either case, Jesus' reply is a little bit scandalous. He says to them, Man, who made me a judge over you? In other words, what? I don't care about your inheritance. I don't care about your inheritance. Which is a shocking disregard for the cultural norm because the rights to inheritance, the rights to the family land, was of great social importance because it would in many ways and to a great extent determine the worldly livelihood of the generations to come of that family. And his quick dismissal of this would gain attention. But the point, of course, is that Jesus wants to address what's underneath the question, as he so often does. So he doesn't give the man what he wants. He gives the man what he needs, a warning. Take care and guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The man wanted to use Jesus to meet his monetary desires, but the Lord, of course, refuses that role because even if this man was being wronged by his brother, getting his rights may not be the best thing for him at that time. We always want to be right. We demand our rights, but getting what's right according to the law, may not be the best thing for your soul because there's a deeper concern here. There's a far greater danger than losing out on one's inheritance. And so Jesus illustrates with this parable. Now you have to admit, it's kind of an absurd parable, right? It's a parable in which he employs exaggeration for effect and surely you heard it. Surely you heard it. It's a fairly brief parable and it's mostly just this man talking to himself. And in the some 50 or so Greek words that the man says to himself, 18 of them, one out of every three, and more than that, say something about himself. You could call this the me, myself, and I parable. I mean, it's just as blatant as that. even talks to himself in that way, and it's absurd in the way that he does it. You heard it. Who is his greatest concern? Well, that's clear. It's himself. Now, you have to notice that even his being rich is not a problem here. His being rich, he already was rich. This is a case of the rich getting richer. 
which is fine insofar that he didn't acquire it illegally. He didn't acquire it in some way that would be displeasing to God. In fact, the land produced it for him, which means, of course, that God gave it to him. The riches came from God himself. The problem, rather, is, of course, in how he deals with it once he has it. Every thought is devoted to his own indulgence. Every thought is devoted to thinking about what he will gain and what he will enjoy and what he will do with what he has made, what he has maintained, and what he will have for the years to come. That's all that is of concern to him because apart from the gospel, it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. Greed or covetousness sounds like one of those nasty dark sins that unfolds only in the smoky back rooms of a casino or maybe in the high-rise boardrooms of Wall Street or maybe the powered political hallways of Washington where mere mortals tinker with debt ceilings and world financial markets. But covetousness and greed is born in the family room. Our family recently has discovered an old game show that's fun to watch, and we enjoy it. Let's make a deal. It's kind of got the the revised, modernized version of an old game show, and I can remember that game show phase myself as a child. Maybe you did the same thing with my brother in the summertime when it's 103 degrees outside, and at 10 o'clock in the morning, The Price is Right comes on. And What does a 12-year-old boy want to do with The Price is Right? Well, there's a lot to do with The Price is Right or The Wheel of Fortune, or all other mindless money games that came on television in that day, and now they've been revamped and revitalized and put forth in the same packaging. Let's make a deal as a a funny show with a funny host, a humorous comedian. You may have seen it. And the crowd is dressed in silly costumes, and he's just walking among the crowd, making deals with the crowd, and it's fun to watch. It's fun to anticipate what the deal is going to be, You know, you can have this $100 or behind the curtain is something else. And it might be a zonk, which is nothing. Or it might be a grand vacation. Or it might be a boat or a car. Or you can have the $100. Which do you want? The grass is greener maybe behind the curtain or maybe it's not. It's a, a funny show. It's fun to watch. But it's interesting to see that Greed is not a sin that blows its trumpet to announce its arrival. It arrives and it sneaks in with levity and laughter, selling itself in lighthearted ways to anyone who will buy it. And we all do. We all buy it. Every one of us in this room can look down the aisle. I mean, right here this morning, or in front of you, or an aisle behind you, and find someone who has something that you prefer over what you have that's similar. It could be anything. It might be as simple as as an article of clothing or a hairstyle. It might be an ability that you know that person has or some physical attribute. It might be their spouse or their children that you covet, that you would prefer to have. It might be a position or a job that they have or a house or a car that they have or a vacation schedule that you know they have that you wish that you could have. The inclination of our heart is to want what we don't have. And there's good reason for it. And it's in the Bible. Do you know that? 
There's a good reason for it. It's in the Bible. You know, back in Genesis chapter 3, from the very beginning, it's where this, this starts. Adam and Eve were dismissed from the garden because of their rebellion against God, and God placed that sentry at the garden gate to prevent their re-entry. And the rest of Scripture, the rest of human history, is man attempting to get back into that garden, back into paradise on his own. He wants to climb over the walls or find some way to dig under the walls or to break through the walls to get in somehow on his own to experience paradise, which he was meant to experience. You want what you don't have, and you know that you're supposed to have something, whatever it is, that's better than you do have because it's what God made you for. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay that's well-known among many people. You've probably read it, many of you have, called The Weight of Glory. And in that essay, C.S. Lewis calls this the desire for our proper place. In other words, we were made for a reality that's greater than what we have. The place that we occupy is not the proper one. There's something more that we were made for. It's who God made us to be. We're made to have something more than what we have in this broken and fallen world. We're made for something more and we know it. He goes on to explain it. He says, While being hungry doesn't prove that you have bread, it does indicate that you are of a race that repairs its body by eating and that you inhabit a world where edible things exist. In the same way, while your desire for paradise doesn't prove that you shall enjoy it, it does indicate that such a thing exists and that some will. After all, a man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be very odd if the phenomena called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. In other words, he's saying you have desires for things. and It's because you're made for something greater than what you have. The desire is there because God put it there. He made you to be in the garden. You want what you don't have because you want paradise. You want what you don't have because you're not in your proper place. But when you turn for its fulfillment to mere worldly things, it becomes greed and covetousness and even idolatry. And this man's bubble bursts in a moment's notice. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The irony is that the soul to which this man had spoken so playfully out of the joy of his possessions is now required by the one who loaned it to him. In essence, God comes to him and says, that soul to which you were talking, I loaned it to you. Now I'm calling the loan and it's mine. It's time to give it back. And for such a man... The hard part about death is the evaluation of what you lose in it. The barns that he built, the people that he controlled, the prestige that he acquired. Death strips it all bare and reveals that even that soul was merely on loan. And that's all. Jim Elliott said those uh, words that seem to last, and so many people know them. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Here's the fool of which he speaks, who gives all that he has for what he can't keep. 
and he doesn't gain what he can't lose. Guard your heart against covetousness, lest you gain only what you can't keep. Of course, the gospel is not just a, a negative, it's a positive as well. It's not just a guarding, but a cultivating that Jesus speaks of here. And he explains to them that your father knows what you need, and so as well cultivate in your heart contentment. On the heels of this parable, he turns to his disciples to explain himself. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. In other words, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, whether it's food or clothing or anything. Don't be anxious about it. Cultivate, rather, contentment because your Father knows what you need, even if you don't. You know, as he moves on into these words of wisdom, these familiar statements that we've all heard, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. Consider the lilies, they neither toil nor spin. It almost lulls us to sleep because missing the rudeness of ravens, you know, his point was, Consider the ravens. They're not even endearing. I mean, they're not like the sparrows who are just pleasant little birds. The ravens are rude and obnoxious and they steal and they make noise and they leave messes. Consider the ravens. But we miss the rudeness of them. And we miss the wildness of the lilies which grow in the fields with no cultivation at all. And we dream of happy songbirds and pleasant pastures assuming that the Father knows that we need such serenity in order to evade our anxiety. But that's not the point. The word picture here is simply an argument. You know, it's an argument. If God cares so for these little details, the ravens that are rude and the lilies that are wild, if He cares so for those things, how much more than for you, O you of little faith? It is faith after all that matters here because lacking it, we seek to fill ourselves with what we can see. We seek to fill ourselves with what we can hold. We seek to fill ourselves with what we can taste. We seek to fill ourselves with what we can feel and touch. We seek to fill ourselves with what we can buy. And the nations of the world seek after these things, he says, and your Father knows that you need them. While his contentment to which Jesus exhorts us here doesn't overlook the daily needs. He says, your father knows you you need those things. He's not going to ignore them. It doesn't overlook daily needs, but it does press toward future realities because your father knows you need something more. He says, your father knows that you need his kingdom. But our longings are not attuned towards that. An African student at Covenant Seminary one time preached his first sermon in class. He had been in the States for a few months, three or four months or so. And he began his sermon by explaining, you know, I've been here for a little while. And I've been very impressed by all the things that you have here. I've seen your cars that you drive, multiple ones. I've seen the houses that you live in, large ones. I've seen the clothes that you wear. I've seen the things that you have, so many, many things. And I'm amazed by it. It's remarkable to me. But I'm still amazed even more by the fact that in the months I've been here, going to various churches, I've still not heard one sermon about heaven. Not one. 
Not a single one. You have so many things. You have so much that you don't seem to need it. He said, where I come from in my country, we have very little. In fact, so many people have virtually nothing. We preach on heaven all the time because we know that we need it. It's all that we have. It's our hope. We have nothing else surrounding us to distract us from it. The coming of the kingdom of God is the breaking in of heaven on earth. It's our proper place, which in our heart of hearts we desire deeply. It's the place from which comes mercy and justice and redeeming love and generosity in the name of Jesus, where before there was only hatred and darkness and futility and hopelessness. It's the coming of the kingdom, our proper place, for which we all long, whether believer or skeptic alike, we all long for the same thing. And apart from the gospel, we all go about trying to get it in the same ways with our own personal twist. This is the thing, this kingdom, to dispel your anxiety. But you have little faith. You don't see it. You don't see it. Jesus says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. But you don't see it because there's too much else in view that demands your attention. I mean, the never-ending battle of the schedule that allows no free time at all for anything else but the schedule. The ever-present struggle of friendship and the conflict that comes with it inevitably at some point along the way. The daily discernment of a calling even and, and wondering at times if you have what's necessary to fulfill it. And even the simple concern of paying your own bills, as small as they may seem to you in the context of the larger reality. So even the complex concern of a country paying its bills, which is a picture of all of us struggling to do the very thing. You know, it's silly, this whole federal debt ceiling crisis thing. You know, it's captured the news recently. And everybody who reads the news wonders how it's going to resolve. In one sense, some people are worried about it because they're anticipating potential problems. On another hand, many people aren't even concerned about it yet because this sort of thing has happened before. Maybe they're not even aware of it, but even if they are, these kind of things get resolved eventually and life goes on. But as far as I understand it, and I don't understand much about these things, but on August 2nd, the deadline, if that date passes with no plan for addressing the federal deficit and dealing with the debt ceiling, then the U.S. government at that point will only be able to pay half of its 80 million bills that will be due in August. You think you have a few bills. 80 million bills, it will only be able to to pay half of those. So something, many things, millions of things will not get paid. What? What won't get paid if this happens? Well, it'd be easy to not pay for the national parks and monuments or highway construction projects that are always ongoing. Maybe they would refuse to pay for funding medical research, even cancer research that could eventually save lives. And those kind of things would have effects ranging from disappointing to inconvenient to even traumatic for those who are affected by the medical research or lack thereof. Maybe, though, they'll refuse to pay for Social Security and the bills that go with that or Medicare Maybe, and that would cause a major social upheaval, wouldn't it? If they did that, that would be unprecedented. And we all know that won't happen because, why? Way too many votes right on those things, and so they won't refuse to pay for those things. Or maybe, maybe they'll just decide to stop paying 
what's, I guess, nowadays the biggest bill of all, the interest payments on the current debt. Maybe they just won't pay those payments, as so many people do in regard to their own homes nowadays. And we'll just simply collectively concede a national default, and the dollar will begin to devalue around the globe, and the world financial crisis will sweep through all societies, and there will be a complete paradigm shift. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe not. But what do I know? I mean, nothing, really, honestly. I know nothing about these things. Nothing at all except for one. If an August 2 deadline arrives with no action, even if political parties posturing for their own jobs let a lightning bolt rock the world economy, even still, the kingdom of God will come. Jesus will say, Man, who made me an arbitrator for you? And the kingdom of God will come. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And life does not depend on the comfort of a culture. Rather, its contentment resides in the coming of a kingdom. Are you content with that? Are you content with that? Your Father knows what you need. So seek His kingdom and those other things will be added to you. Fear not. Fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you, to give you the kingdom. Put away your unbelief that leads to fear and self-interest and anxiety. Your Father knows what you need, so guard your heart against covetousness. Your proper place can't be bought with anything. Your Father knows what you need. So cultivate in your heart contentment. Your proper place, your proper place is in His kingdom. Oh Lord, we pray that You would grant to us faith to believe this word, that our proper place is in Your kingdom. We pray, oh Lord, that You would allow us by Your grace, by Your mercy to turn away from our pettiness, from our selfish interests from our fears and anxieties that we fulfill with things that we can hold and taste and touch and buy and turn our interests instead to seeking your kingdom, to being rich towards you, to serving you and recognizing that you as our Heavenly Father do not forget about us, that you know what we need and that you will be sure that we have it in our soul's We pray, O Lord, all of these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.